John chapter 9 and verses 8 through 16, the Bible says, The neighbors therefore, and they which before had seen him, that he was blind, said, Is not this he that sat and begged? Some said, This is he. Others said, He is like him. But he said, I am he. Therefore said they unto him, How were thine eyes opened? He answered and said, A man that is called Jesus made clay and anointed mine eyes and said unto me, Go to the pool of Siloam and wash. And I went and washed and I received sight. Then said they unto him, Where is he? He said, I know not. They brought to the Pharisees him that aforetime was blind. And it was the Sabbath day when Jesus made the clay and opened his eyes. Then again, the Pharisees also asked him how he had received his sight. He said unto them, He put clay upon mine eyes, and I washed and do see. Therefore said some of the Pharisees, This man is not of God, because he keepeth not the Sabbath day. Others said, How can a man that is a sinner do such miracles? And there was division among them. So I am the light of the world. That's this statement that Jesus made about himself. And what we said last week was that there are two instances where Jesus making this statement is recorded for us in the Gospels. They're both in in, in the Gospel of John chapter 9. And when Jesus makes this statement about himself, the first time is in chapter 8, and then the next one is in chapter 9, which is earlier in verse number 5, where Jesus says, I am the light of the world. And what we did last week is what we want to do again this week, and that is to just kind of lay a foundation for the significance of that statement. What does it mean? And then what is the particular uh, way that we're thinking about it, right? So when you back up to chapter number eight and you read the first uh, record of Jesus making this statement, it's in John chapter eight and verse number 12. Then spake Jesus again unto them saying, I am the light of the world. He that followeth me shall not walk in darkness, but shall have the light of life. So Jesus makes this, along with several other, what are sometimes called the I am statements in the Bible, right? And Jesus makes this I am statement, I am the light of the world. And when he made this statement, it would have been to a predominantly Jewish audience, and they would have taken it in several ways, but one way is they would have received it as a claim to divine authority. Jesus was saying that I am the light, If you follow me, you won't be in darkness anymore. So Jesus was claiming to have a say in people standing before God, their spiritual life. That was a really serious claim for Jesus to make. And so what happens in chapter 8, the rest of the way, which is verses 13 through 59, is the Pharisees say to Jesus, we understand what you're saying and you're a liar right? They just put it right out there, right? What you're saying about yourself is not true. And so the rest of the chapter, Jesus gives a defense to his claim of divine authority. Jesus essentially does this. He says, I am the light of the world. And let me explain to you what that means. And what Jesus will go on to do in chapter number eight is he'll give all of the historical implications of that statement. He'll make a connection between himself and Israel's history in a way that just absolutely infuriated the Pharisees. And then he'll make all of these cultural connections. He's like right in the middle of the Feast of Tabernacles is when Jesus said these things. And there was so much 
that light had to do with their religious observance. And so he says, there's history here, there's culture here. But then most significantly, Jesus would say, there's also theological implications to what I'm saying. And his defense in chapter 8 would culminate with another claim. First, it was divine authority, but then he makes a claim to divine nature, right? And we included this one, a passage in your notes as well. It's chapter 8, verse 58. Jesus said unto them, verily, verily, I say unto you, before Abraham was, I am. So again, when we went over this last week, what we said was first he claimed divine authority. He said, if you follow me, you won't be in darkness anymore. You'll have the light of life. And then when he finishes his defense, he says, before Abraham was, I am. That's a claim of divine nature. Jesus was saying, I existed before my earthly life. That's what he was claiming. That's a serious claim. And so Jesus lays this out. He says, I am the light of the world. Here's what that means with history. Here's what it means with our culture. And here's what it means theologically. Here's what it means when it comes to who I am. So chapter 8, I am the light of the world. Jesus says, let me explain to you what that means. And what we said last week was that that part of it is a fascinating study. The history, the culture, the theology. And what we did last week is we commended those parts of it to your study. If you're passionate about growing in your knowledge of God's word, then you ought to take time personally as a believer to read chapter 8, to study chapter 8, and to see the culture and the history and the theology. But what we said last week is that our sermon, uh, this lesson series over the next couple weeks, is not going to focus on the history and the culture or the theology. What we wanted was to focus on what we could call the practical side of the statement. Because when we go to chapter number 9, what Jesus essentially does is he says, I am the light of the world. Right In chapter number 8, he says, I am the light of the world. Here's what that means. In chapter number 9, he says, I am the light of the world. Let me show you what that looks like. And so what we get in chapter number 9 are all these practical, real-life examples of Jesus bringing light into darkness, of Jesus bringing light into the darkness of this world and our lives. And so what we did last week was we looked at the first two examples in chapter number 9. The first example is Jesus brings light to his disciples. Now, if you remember, and if we were to back up to verse number one, the scene starts off with Jesus and his disciples coming upon this blind man. And the first way that Jesus is light, the first way he brings light into the situation, is he helps the disciples see that they have a blind spot. Because when they come across this blind man, the disciples say, Jesus, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? So the disciples reveal their perspective. As far as they're concerned, he's blind, that's bad, and so he must be getting punished for his sin. That is a very limited perspective when it comes to sin and suffering and God's blessings. So Jesus brings light by helping the disciples see things in a different way. He gives them a different perspective. And whereas the disciples were limited, Jesus' perspective is an eternal perspective. Jesus says, he didn't sin, His family didn't sin, but that the works of God would be manifest in him. So the way Jesus brings light into the situation is he helps his disciples go from a limited perspective to an eternal perspective. He said, no, there's more at work. And I said last week, when I read this story, I can't help but wonder, if I'm the blind guy and I hear Jesus say that, I'm probably thinking to myself, what? Like, back up just a second here. Like, Jesus said, 
It's not because of sin. It's for right now, this moment. He was born blind. He has endured what he has endured so that he could be healed, so that the glory of God could be manifested in his life. All of what has happened in his life from, now, from, from beginning until now has been leading up until this point. That's an incredible, incredible thing. And what we challenged ourselves with is that sometimes we have that same limited perspective. We think about the circumstances that, we, that happen in our lives in the same way that the disciples did. If it's bad, it must be bad. There's nothing good can come from it. And we said last week, and we want to say again this week, some of us are going through difficult things or you have people in your life that are going through difficult things. And we don't want to pretend like they're not difficult, right? Sometimes we're tempted to sort of like sanitize our trials or spiritualize our trials and say, well, we just have to trust the Lord. That's true. We do have to trust the Lord. But you know, it's okay to, uh, to admit how you feel and that sometimes you're going through things and they're awful and you wish they would stop. Maybe you have somebody in your life and it's awful and you wish it would stop. And if, that's, if, you, if that resonates with you, can I just encourage you with something? It's okay to acknowledge how we feel about the trials that we go through. What Jesus invites us to do is challenge ourselves to think he's always at work. He is sovereign. He's always in control. And he is good and he can bring about his purposes even through difficult things. And so if you're willing, if I'm willing to trust the Lord... And to say, you know what? I don't get it. I don't like it. But God is in control. He's sovereign and God is good and he works things out for his good. So Jesus brought light to his disciples. But then the second example that we have of Jesus bringing light is probably the most obvious in the whole story. And that is there's a guy who's blind and Jesus gives him sight. He heals him. And we talked about how that is both a beautiful picture of salvation the work that God wants to do in the life of every person who repents and believes. And it's a beautiful example of compassion. Jesus showed us what it means to see people in their need and to love them. I told a story at the end of the lesson that I told, uh, taught last week. And if you were here, you heard it. If you were not here, you didn't. I know that's really, I'm just laying things out there for you, right? But the point I'm about trying to make is, I did not tell the end of that story. And it wasn't until afterwards, my aunt and my uncle were here. They were like, the best part. I mean, like literally the best part. So when we talked about serving people, we said one of the big reasons why we stop having compassion is because we help people and then they're really, really grateful all the time. No, we said that the reason we get discouraged when it comes to being compassionate is we help people and then people do what people do. People are awful sometimes. I'm awful sometimes. You're awful sometimes, right? People are awful. And so sometimes we get discouraged. We don't want to put ourselves out there to help people and to serve people because, well, they'll probably just throw it right back in my face. My grandparents were pastoring in Michigan. And for some of you, this is rewind, right? But stick with me. There's a good end. So my, parents, my grandparents were pastoring in Michigan in the 80s, and they had a lot of families in their church that in the mid-80s in Michigan, that's where we were, I was born, just throw that out there for everybody. So in, uh, in the 80s, a lot of the uh, auto factories and plants, they had serious layoffs. So my grandparents went from having a church that was doing relatively well to a church full of unemployed people. And there were a lot of financial struggles that they faced. And one family in particular, they had four children. They had one vehicle. It really wasn't one in that great. And then that one finally 
quit. And so my grandfather said to my grandmother, I feel like the Holy Spirit has put on my heart to give one of our vehicles to this family. My grandmother tells the story, the Holy Spirit's not telling me that. Like, I don't, I don't know what he's telling you, but he's not telling me that. But they eventually decide to give the family the vehicle. Fast forward about four or five months, and this family gets upset about something that happens in the church. They get sideways about it, and no matter my uh, grandparents' best efforts, they've decided we're going to leave. So they show up on a Sunday morning. They, all they did was show up to tell them, we're leaving. And so my grandparents will follow them out of the church. You're pleading with them, pleading with them, please stay, please stay, don't go. And they said, nope, there's nothing you can say. And they pile into my grandparents' car and they drive away. And that would just be the worst. Like, I mean, the, the feeling of watching someone drive away in your car, right, treat you in such a terrible way. So when I told the story last week, that's where we left it off, right? Because my grandfather, he just said, I can either get really discouraged or I can just keep on going. And he is still going. 87 years old, and just about six months ago, he accepted the call of a pastor of a church, right? So grandpa's just trucking along, right? But after that happened, probably about six months later, the oldest child of that family got upset at his mom because his mom told him he needed to get a haircut. And so as he was walking away from her, she grabbed the ponytail on the back of his head and snipped the thing off, right, with scissors, just poof. And so he got so angry that he got up into like those like window seats, you know, window, you know what I'm talking about. He got up in like a little window seat and he is kicking the window like a crazy person, right? He breaks the window and he falls and he cuts his leg deeply. I mean, deep, deep cut. They, they wrap his leg up. They scoop him up. They take him to the hospital. He was in danger, not just of losing his leg. They were telling him, your son could die. And who do you think they called? Grandpa. See, my grandfather had decided, as much as it's frustrating, we're just going to give that to the Lord. And they called him. And he picked up the phone, and they explained what was going on, and they said, will you come? So he hung up the phone. And the way my grandmother tells the story <laughs> is that she said, don't even ask me. Just go. I know you're going to go. You know, I mean, I'll tell you what I think you should do. I think you... <laughs> no, but if my grandfather had allowed what the, the treatment of them to... If he had just trashed them or he had, and, and they had allowed that to go back to that family through the church or through people that they know, then he would have missed the opportunity that he was given to be a blessing. I'd like to say that they came back to the church or that everything was all mended, but I know that my grandfather, because of his persistence to want to serve people and love people, and he'd be the first to tell you he didn't always respond that way, but he asked God to help him to have that kind of heart for people. And what we said last week is that when we look at the example of Jesus healing this man, what it gives us is an example of what it looks like to see people who are hurting and do what you can to help people who are hurting, right? So Jesus is the example of compassion. So those were the first two examples. Tonight, we've got two more examples as we keep working our way through chapter number nine. So the next example, how does Jesus bring light into the world? The testimony of the healed man. So after the blind man is healed, 
he begins to share his story with anyone who will ask, even though he did not fully understand who Jesus was. We will see that he became a persistent and bold witness for Christ. And there are a couple of observations that we can make about this. Now, I want to, before I read Acts 1.8, which is just that reminder to us of what our responsibility is as believers, there is the most fascinating thing about this man's witness. It's not until the end of chapter number 9, which we'll read together and study together two weeks from now. It's not until the end of chapter number 9 that Jesus seeks this man out and reveals himself to be the Messiah and invites him to believe. He doesn't even fully understand who Jesus is. All he knows is that Jesus is the guy that healed me. And so before he even fully understands the significance of who Jesus was, he becomes a witness for Jesus. He's willing to share his story with others. This is what Jesus did for me, and this is what he can do for you. And he's an incredible example to us. The Bible says in Acts 1.8, But ye shall receive power. After that, the Holy Ghost has come upon you, and ye shall be witnesses unto me, both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and in Samaria and unto the uttermost part of the earth. So we have been commissioned, we've been called by our Savior, to be his witnesses in the world. And if you're here and you're a follower of Jesus Christ, you and I have a calling to bear witness, to tell people that Jesus died, was buried, and rose again for their sins. That's the calling of God for every believer. We're to be witnesses. And the Bible tells us that God has promised to empower those of us who are willing to say yes to his call to be witnesses in the world. Now, when we think about the testimony of this man, there are a couple of really super basic observations. We're going, to think, we're going to look more deeply at how persistent and bold he was next week when we get into this middle section of the chapter, right? But right, what we want to do tonight is just look at some of these just so basic characteristics of his testimony. But I think these will help us as we try to be faithful in this area of being a witness. So three very simple observations about his the testimony of the man who was healed. First, all about Jesus. You say, well, that's real deep, right? We're going to study and we're, we're digging, digging deep. But here's the thing. There's something important about this. The man is asked what happened and what his story, first and foremost, is all about Jesus, right? The main character is the guy who did the healing. And as simple as that might sound, I think we need to challenge ourselves about this in a couple of ways. Let's read one text before we do that. 2 Corinthians 4, verses 5 through 7. The Bible says, For we preach not ourselves, but Christ Jesus the Lord, and ourselves your servants for Jesus' sake. For God, who commanded the light to shine out of darkness, hath shined in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. But we have this treasure in earthen vessels that the excellency of the power may be of God and not of us. Paul says, we don't preach ourselves, we preach Christ Jesus the Lord. We have treasure and it's in earthen vessels, right? We are limited. Our our capabilities are limited. Our time is limited. Why? So that the excellency of the power may be of God and not of us. It's about him And it's about his glory. The reason why it's important to be reminded of this is because the devil loves to take the testimony and witness of the Christian and make it about them. Because if he can get you talking about you, if he can get me talking about me, that works for him. 
In a minute, we're going to talk about the personal part of our testimony because there's a story to be told. The way that God has worked in your life, the unique way, the people, the places, there's a part of it. But where it starts is with Jesus. And more than just getting us to talk about ourselves, he gets us to talk about other things. If you think about the fact that we have limited time, the devil can get you and me bold and courageous talking about other stuff. That's what he'll do. The reason why we ought to be reminded that our testimony is about Jesus is because Jesus is the one that people need. Jesus is the one that changes lives. In our culture that we live in, we are told that our hope is in this and our hope is in that. And if as believers, we get our eyes off of Jesus and onto the false gods of the world, then what we are going to start to become are bold and passionate witnesses for the false gods. Let me give an example. And this is not, won't be controversial or make you feel uncomfortable at all. That's just to prepare you for that it probably will. No, but why is it that we have no problem telling people how we feel when it comes to politics. We are bold on social media and we are bold in the workplace and we are bold at the family reunion. Even if it means, I mean, we'll say things like, well, I'm going to just let people, I must let people know how I feel. And if it, if it costs me a friend, then it costs me a friend. But our faith, it's just not the same. Now you say, well, before, before you say that, there are things that are worth talking about. You're 100% right. I don't want, uh, it, it, it would be the devil sitting on your shoulder that would tell you, well, Pastor Matt is acting like there aren't really important things that we should be talking about and standing up for. I understand that. And my prayer for us as believers when it comes to those things is that we would have wisdom to know what to say and how to say it and when to say it. Because there are things that are happening in our culture, they're serious, and we need to speak the truth into those things. Amen. Not saying that. But what I'm saying is, we have to ask ourselves, what is it that we really think is going to bring change into people's lives? And if we believe that it's the gospel of Jesus Christ, then that ought to be what is the common theme in the things that we say. And all my invitation to you is, is that you would think through every post and every comment, that you would be careful and you'd ask yourself a very simple question. Is this going to point people to Jesus? If it's going to point people to Jesus, then say it. But if there's a possibility that you're going to point people away from Christ or to some lesser hope, before we do that, before we give them their opinions about this or that, before we try to change them when it comes to this or that, why not invite them to believe in the wonderful Savior who can change them and transform them and bring about real life change that's who people need, is Jesus. Um, in John chapter 3, we have this fascinating interaction between John the Baptist and some of his followers. This is right after the conversation that Jesus had with Nicodemus. And it picks up in verse 22 of John 3, and it says, After these things came Jesus and his disciples into the land of Judea, and there he tarried with them and baptized and John also was baptizing in Anon near to Salim because there was much water there. And they came and were baptized, for John was not yet cast into prison. Then there arose a question between some of John's disciples and the Jews about purifying. And they came unto John and said unto him, Rabbi, 
he that was with thee beyond Jordan, to whom thou bearest witness. Behold, the same baptizeth, and all men come to him. And John answered and said, A man can receive nothing except it be given him from heaven. Ye yourselves bear me witness that I said, I am not the Christ, but then I am sent before him. He that hath the bride is the bridegroom, but the friend of the bridegroom, which standeth and heareth him, rejoiceth greatly because of the bridegroom's voice. This my joy, therefore, is fulfilled. He must increase, but I must decrease. The end of John's statement, where he says, this is what gives me joy, is when people hear the voice of Jesus. And I want to ask you a question, and I want you to think about it in all truthfulness and honesty. When was the last time you saw somebody, experienced somebody as a result of your witness or the witness of somebody in your life, hear the voice of God, hear the gospel, the good news that Jesus loves them, and to have their life transformed by that? Does it bring you joy to see people come to faith in Jesus Christ? If it brings you joy, if that's what brings you joy, then you and I ought to be passionate about people getting to Jesus. We ought to be passionate about people hearing the gospel and experiencing the transformation that comes through the good news of God's love and grace. It ought to all be about Jesus. He needs to increase. I need to decrease. And so in my interactions with my family, in my interactions with my neighbors, in my interactions at the workplace, in my interactions online, what ought to matter to me first and foremost is that as a Jesus follower, people are hearing about my Savior. And so I ought to ask myself the question, how much of my talking, how much of my, the very limited amount of time that I have, am I giving it to being a witness? You're not going to walk around talking about Jesus all the time, 24-7. Right? You are going to talk about other things, things of this world, temporal things. You're going to have conversations about work, and you're going to have conversations about politics, and you're going to have conversations about sports. You're going to have those things, right? That's not what we're suggesting. What we're saying is, if we have one life and limited time, then we have to ask ourselves, am I being intentional and sharing with people the good news? It's the gospel that has the power to change people's lives. It's Jesus that has the power to transform people's lives. So it was all about Jesus. Right? His witness and his testimony was all about Jesus. What else about his testimony? It was personal. So it was about Jesus, but he told his story. And I love when they get around him and they're like, listen, man, just tell us what went down. <laughs> and he said, a man who is called Jesus. Isn't that a great way for a story to start? A man who is called Jesus. And if you're here and you are a believer... You have a story that starts that way. A man who is called Jesus. You have a story to tell. And your story has unique people and unique places and unique circumstances. Now, I grew up in church. The first time I went to church, I was two weeks old. Don't remember the service, but I was there, right? And so I have been going to church my whole life. And so as I've been going to church my whole life, I've heard a lot of testimonies. A lot of people share Oh, I was doing this and this and this, and then I got saved. And even as a young man, I started to get a little bit intimidated because I would think to myself, I don't have a story like that. I was born into a Christian home. 
I was raised going to church. I heard the gospel as a young man. What a wonderful blessing that was. But I thought, man, I can't tell about any major change in my behavior or some trajectory where I went from going this way to that way. But here's the thing. Um, When it comes to salvation, it's not a competition, right? When me and you gather around the throne together as brothers and sisters in Christ to worship God, it's not going to be a comparison of our salvation. Because the thing is, if you're saved, if you got saved, whether it was a, as a nine-year-old or 10-year-old young person sitting in a Sunday school class, or whether you were 30, 40 years old, and you had all sorts of uh, challenges, and then God saved you and changed you, regardless of which one happened, it was a miracle. You got saved. And so you have a story to tell. Right? And your story begins just like this man's story, a man who is called Jesus. And be willing to lean into the unique ways that God has worked in your life. During the summer discipleship deep dive, we talked a little bit. We took two weeks to talk about uh, discipleship. We talked about my story. We talked about God's story. And we thought about this very truth, this idea that I can take what God has done in my life, the story of who I was before, how I came to Christ, what has happened since I've known Christ. That's my story. That's your story. One of the great um, testimonies in Scripture is the testimony of the Apostle Paul. I included the the text uh, from Galatians. I'd invite you to take time to read it later. But one of the parts of that testimony that I wanted to point out when he writes to the Galatian Christians and he reminds them of the fact that, you know, I was not a really good guy. And then Jesus saved me. And here's how that happened. Here's the whole story. And I love how he ends his testimony. He said, in Galatians, he says, and this isn't in your notes, but I'll read it to you. He says, and they glorified God in me, right? He said, the believers who at first, when I showed up, and I'm like, I'm a Christian. They're like, nice try, right? We know what you're all about, man. You're going to try to infiltrate so that you can decimate, right? We're not letting you in here. And he said, no, I really am. And then finally, because of the faithfulness of some believers to say, hey, I think his life has been changed. We've got to welcome him in. And the Bible says that the believers glorified God because of Paul. And I'll tell you what, what an awesome thing it would be for whatever your story is, whatever your past is, whatever you've been through, whatever's happened, that you can tell that story of God's goodness and grace and the same thing will happen for you that happened for Paul. They glorified God because of me. I shared my story, I told them what God did, and it brought glory to God. When the Bible talks about letting our light shine, that they can see your good works and glorify your Father, which is in heaven, that's what it's all about. His testimony was all about Jesus, and it was personal. He's like, I don't know, guys, I was sitting on the side of the road, I was blind. Guy walks up, something, something about it not being sin, and then here, go wash, let me stick this stuff on your face. And now I can see. And I'm just telling you what happened to me. This is my story, and it was a man named Jesus. And whatever and however God worked in your life to bring about your salvation, you ought to rejoice in it. You ought to be thankful for it. See, for a long time, I would kind of think to myself, man, my story is not that great. Until I had someone in our church that I was pastoring in Maryland come up to me after I said something similar and say, can I tell you that when you say you grew up in a Christian home, that for me is such an amazing thing to hear because I didn't. And he said, Pastor Matt, the fact that you grew up in a Christian home, that's not a drawback. That's your story. That's how God worked in your life. And so tell people, I am blessed. 
I am grateful to have grown up in a place where I was taught God's word and was taken to church, and I'm thankful for the faithfulness of God. I didn't get saved because I was born into a Christian home. I got saved because one day, as a young man, I heard the gospel, and I believed, and God saved me. Just like he saved you, if you've believed. And however that happened, whatever the story is, you ought to tell it. You ought to tell people about what Jesus has done for you. It was all about... Galatians chapter 4, verses 11 through 24 is the text for Paul's testimony. It was all about Jesus. It was personal. And then it was honest. This is probably one of my favorite parts about this man's testimony. We see it once in this section of verses and again a little bit later on. But when I say honest, I mean this. They keep asking him questions. And he's like, I don't know. Right, We already know that he does not even fully understand who Jesus is. But in the passage that we just read, they said, okay, well, we want to talk to Jesus. Where is he? He's like, I don't know. And then later, they'll say to him, How, who do you think he is? It's like, well, I mean, I guess a prophet or something. I don't, I don't know. They say, what does, that, what does that teach us? I think one of the biggest reasons we are afraid to share our faith, especially in the culture that we live in, which is a post-Christian and increasingly secular culture. One of the biggest fears we have is that we're going to be asked questions that we don't know the answer to or that we're going to be pushed when it comes to topics that we would say are controversial or sensitive or we're going to be asked hard questions. And so the fear of not being able to answer those questions, and I would say that the example that the man gives us is a simple one, and that is if you don't know the answer to a question, just say that. And as strange as that might sound, the reason that I think it's important is because if the devil can convince you to keep your mouth closed because, you know, well, you're just not, you just don't have it all together, man. You just don't have all the knowledge that you need to be able. Listen, if Jesus saved you, if your life's been changed, if, if you were here and now you're there, you've got something to share. And if somebody asks you a question or brings up something and you're not comfortable, use it as an opportunity to have another gospel conversation. You say, you know what? I would like some time to think about that. Why don't we have some, why don't we, why don't we set a time to meet up again and we can talk more about that when I'm given some time to think about it? When you're honest about the fact that you don't have all the answers, listen, people are desperate for authenticity in this world. There's a whole lot of pretense anymore in our culture. And when people are just real, it makes a difference. So instead of allowing a fear of not knowing what to say, or a fear of maybe being asked a question you don't know the answer to, just use it as an opportunity to be authentic and honest. And we're going to see in a moment how important authenticity is. But just use it as an opportunity to be real. I don't, I don't, I don't have all the answers. And use it as an opportunity to create more gospel conversations. You know what? Maybe we should get together again so that we can talk about that. I want to have some more time to think about it, more time to research it. Maybe you can look into it, and I'll look into it, and we'll meet back up again. Don't let the fear of being confronted with something that you're not sure about or comfortable with, keep you from being a witness. Just be a witness. And when you're, when, you're, when you're faced with your own limitations, be honest and watch while God uses that. That is the testimony of the man who is healed. And Jesus wants to bring light into this world and he wants to use, amazingly, he wants to use you and me and our story and how he's worked in our lives to accomplish it. Jesus is the light of the world. And one of the ways that he brings light is through the faithful witness 
of his people. And may the Lord help each and every one of us to be faithful witnesses. One more example tonight of how Jesus brings light. There is the witness or the testimony of the healed man, but then there's the reaction of the Pharisees. So Jesus is the light of the world. He does this throughout his public life and ministry, but he shines a spotlight on the Pharisees. He reveals them for who they really are and what they're really all about. And he does it again in this passage. The way that they respond to what happened to this man, the way they react, says so much about what is really going on in their hearts. And Jesus makes that clear. And it's important to understand that Jesus still does this today, right? The truth of his word and the power of the gospel makes what is hidden revealed, right? The Bible says there is nothing in secret. There is nothing in secret that will not be revealed. Why do we love darkness rather than light? Because our deeds are evil. And Jesus brings light and we are revealed to be who we really are. And that's exactly what happens to the Pharisees. And there's at least three ways that this happens in the text. First, we see the hypocrisy of the Pharisees. So the neighbors are not satisfied and they say, let's take him to the Pharisees. And we already know that the Pharisees are not particularly thrilled with Jesus at this point. Chapter 8 Jesus kind of just put it down, laid it down over and over again. They said, you're a liar. Remember that? You're a liar. What you say is not true. And Jesus said, yeah, yeah, it is true. I know what you're saying, but you're wrong, right? So the Pharisees are not thrilled. So they bring this guy who was blind, and now he can see, and they bring him to the Pharisees. And what you see is not the kind of people, the reaction from these people that you would expect. These are the good guys. Right? These are the religious people. These are the people that know God. These are the people that love God. And they bring this man to them, and it's clear. Their interest is not in the truth. It's not in worshiping God. It's not in finding out what is happening so that we can be part of it. They just want to discredit him. They want to go after Jesus. It's all about their agenda. They're hypocrites. They don't really care about God's work in their midst. Because if they did, they'd be celebrating. Jesus said to the, the Pharisees in Matthew 15, 7 and 8, Ye hypocrites, well did Isaiah prophesy of you, saying, This people draweth nigh unto me with their mouth, and honoreth me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. Jesus makes it very clear that the Pharisees, they talk a big talk, they talk about how much they love God, how much they want to worship God, but when given an opportunity to celebrate God's work, when given an opportunity to say somebody who was in need has been healed, when given an opportunity to celebrate God's blessings, instead, they go after this man, they go after Jesus, and they make it all about themselves because they're hypocrites. You say, man, Pastor Matt, I don't like hypocrites. Uh, the church is, uh, if you've heard from people who, I, I don't go to church or I'm not involved as much as I said because it's full of hypocrites. Hypocrisy is a sin that is rampant and that is very, very difficult sometimes to detect. The first person that I ought to be most concerned about with hypocrisy is myself. I ought to be asking God every day to help me see whether or not my walk is matching my talk. And the way that Jesus exposed the hypocrisy of the Pharisees through truth and through his work in the world is the way he continues to do that today. And may each and every one of us in this room allow 
the word of God, the truth of God that shines a light to constantly run over us so that we can see, like David prayed, see if there be any wicked way in me. Lead me in the way everlasting. I don't want to be a hypocrite. I want to be sincere. And you might be here and you might be struggling. You say, Pastor Matt, the truth is, I've got a persona to keep up. I've got a, 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 an image to maintain. But the truth is, I'm struggling with this and struggling with that. The best thing that you could do is right here, right now, tonight, confess, forsake, and make a change. It might be really, really difficult, but it's better than living a lie. It's better than living a double life. Hypocrisy is so, uh, can become so uh, entrenched in our lives. The Pharisees are, I mean, they are so deep into this thing that very few of them are going to be converted during Jesus' public life and ministry. I mean, you see what a struggle it was just for Nicodemus to go to Jesus and the work that he, the, the, the struggle and the anguish that he went through just to try to understand who Jesus was. That's because it's so deep. Don't let hypocrisy take root in your life. Jesus says there's hypocrisy, and that's what we see in the Pharisees. But we don't just see hypocrisy, we see pride. This is one of the more fascinating things. The, they hear the man's story, and instead of, wow, that's wonderful, or celebrating it, they just go after him, and they go after Jesus. They make a statement, they ask a question, and we see their pride in the statement. What, does he, what do they say? This man is not of God, because he keepeth not the Sabbath. Now, that is somebody who has a pretty high opinion of their opinion. Because to say something like, this person is of God, and this person's not of God, right? They're, man, they're the kingmakers, aren't they? Like, these people are of God. These people are not of God. And isn't it interesting to, like, try to get your head around their criteria? So what is it that makes somebody of God, according to the Pharisees, right? We have Jesus. He's this humble teacher from Nazareth, lives a really simple life, travels around teaching people about the kingdom of God and about how to treat each other better. And he heals people that are sick. And he feeds big crowds of people. Not a man of God. Right? What makes someone of God is what? Keep the Sabbath. Right? Not just keep the Sabbath. Don't just follow the rules. Follow the rules our way. Right? Do it our way. The, the, for the Pharisees, they had decided, and this is their pride, right? This is what makes someone of God this is what makes someone not. We won't read that whole passage, but that passage in Mark 7, verses 1 through 13, that's where Jesus condemns the Pharisees again as hypocrites. It's the same scenario being talked about in Matthew 15, 7. It's just from Mark's point of view. But Jesus lays it out there like this. He says, you guys have made your traditions the most important thing. And so what you've done is you've made the word of God of none effect because it's all about you, right? And you have such high opinion of yourself and how you think things should be done. And if people don't fit into that mold, if they don't do it the way that they're supposed to, then there's something wrong. This is the great pride of the Pharisees, right? It's my way or the highway. He's not of God because he's not doing things the way that I want to do. Fast forward to us. Pride in the life of a Christian is so opposite of the way it should be because the humblest people in the world ought to be the people who've been saved by grace through faith alone in Jesus Christ. 
Nothing that we could have done when we understand the gospel. It's nothing that we could have done. It's only by his mercy that we're saved. And we ought to be a humble people. Peter warned the believers. He said, don't think of yourself more highly than you ought to think. But think soberly. He'll then later describe it like this. Clothe yourself in humility. When you wake up in the morning, I'm going to say no to pride and yes to humility. What's the only reasonable response to God's grace and love? It's humility. In the story of Ruth, when Ruth is um, and, and, and Naomi are rescued by Boaz, when they experience the grace of God, Ruth falls on her face and says, I'm not worthy of this kind of grace. That's what grace should do. It should just make us humble people. But we're sinners, and so we struggle with pride. And we struggle with thinking of ourselves in a way that we ought not to think. And my encouragement to each and every one of us today is that Jesus is the light of the world. He shines a light on sin. He helps us see our hypocrisy, and he helps us see our pride. And may God help us to live lives of humility where we love people and treat people the way God has instructed us to treat people. There's the hypocrisy of the Pharisees, the pride of the Pharisees, but what's the final way in which the, uh, uh, the Jesus is a light where he exposes the sin of the Pharisees? There's their self-righteousness, right? We said there's the statement, that's where the pride is, but what question did they ask? How can a man that is a sinner do such miracles? How can a man that is a sinner do such miracles? This is par for the course for the Pharisees. Matthew 9, 10 through 13. And it came to pass, as Jesus sat at meat in the house, behold, many publicans and sinners came and sat down with him and his disciples. And when the Pharisees saw it, they said unto his disciples, Why eateth your master with publicans and sinners? But when Jesus heard that, he said unto them, They that behold need not a physician, but they that are sick... But go ye and learn what that meaneth. I will have mercy and not sacrifice. For I am not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Uh, Jesus says, I, I, mean, I know you guys um, think you're just fine, but I came to find people who know they're not fine and help them. And when you and I recognize our need as sinners for a Savior, what we're saying is I'm not okay. And when Jesus says he didn't come to call the righteous, what he means is that in order for you to believe in Jesus for salvation, you've got to think you need saving. You've got to think that there is something that you don't have that you need and that Jesus can give you what you need. Now, when we think about this question as we uh, finish things up, there's at least two ways that we can think about it. And one of them is doctrinal and one of them is practical. And I really do love uh, this part of it. He says, um, how can someone who's a sinner, right? This is their self-righteousness, right? That uh, we've decided who the unclean people are. But there's two ways we can think about this. First, what's the theological one? Jesus was not a sinner, right? There's some irony to that. We're like, how can a man who is a sinner do such miracles? Well, Jesus wasn't a sinner, right? We learn a little bit something about who Jesus was, and the irony of the uh, uh, Pharisees' statement, they just don't understand who Jesus is. Hebrews 4.15, For we have not an high priest, which cannot be touched with the feelings of our infirmities, but was all points tempted like as we are, yet without sin. Jesus was not a sinner. Jesus lived a perfectly sinless life. And that's why he could be the sacrifice for sin that was needed, because he was the spotless, 
Lamb of God. 1 Peter 2, 21 through 23, For even hereunto were ye called, because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example that ye should follow his steps, who did no sin. I always found that passage to be somewhat challenging. He says, Jesus has left us an example, following his steps. Example number one, he didn't sin. It's like, I don't even need to read the rest of the list. I'm like, I don't, I'm not going to accomplish this, right? The point is not that we would somehow accomplish any kind of sinless perfection like Jesus did. The point is that Jesus is the standard. All of us are to follow his example. What? That means a lifetime of growth and change. And, uh, but when the Bible says he did no sin, it's pretty crystal clear as to who Jesus was. So there's doctrinally, it's a really fascinating thought. How can a man who's a sinner? Well, Jesus was the sinless son of God. But there's another way we can think about that question, and this is more practical, right? How can a man who is a sinner do such miracles? Well, here's the thing. God can use sinners. Isn't that awesome? Right? The theological truth is that Jesus wasn't a sinner, but practically what's applicable for you and me is they says, how can God use a sinner? I, listen, he not only can use sinners, brothers and sisters, that's his specialty. That is what he does. He takes sinners and he uses them. I'm so glad when they say this in their self-righteousness, how can a man who is a sinner, how can God use a sinner? I'm so glad that that's not true. I'm so glad that God can use sinners. Not unrepentant, right? The Bible is very clear that if we're not willing to repent of our sins, it can hinder us as children of God, our relationship with him, or it's going to keep us from an eternity with him if we're lost and refuse to turn from our sin. But the Bible says when we humble ourselves before God, when we say, I am a sinner and I need a savior, when we humble ourselves before God, he can use us and he will use us. The, Paul, the testimony of Paul the apostle again, 1 Timothy 1, 12 through 17, and I thank Christ Jesus our Lord, who hath enabled me, for that he counted me faithful, putting me into the ministry, who was before a blasphemer and a persecutor and injurious. But I obtained mercy because I did it ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord was exceeding abundant with faith and love, which is in Christ Jesus. This is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptation, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am chief. Howbeit for this cause I obtain mercy, that in me first uh, Jesus Christ might show forth all long suffering for a pattern to them which should hereafter believe on him to life everlasting. Now unto the King, eternal, immortal, invisible, the only wise God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. Right? That's just, that's just Paul worshiping the Lord. He says, uh, Jesus came into the world to save sinners. I'm the worst sinner, and he saved me. If he can save me, he can save anybody. And that is worth shouting about and praising God about and being excited about because God can use sinners. And so the theological part of it is Jesus was the sinless son of God. But for you and me, the practical part of it, he can use sinners. And if you're here and you're a sinner, you can be saved. And if you're a sinner, you can be active in God's service. You can be used by God to do his work in the world because that's the kind of work that he does. Jesus is the light of the world, right? And he used this man who was healed to be a witness and a testimony and he revealed the sinfulness and wickedness of the Pharisees. This is how he is the light of the world. 